Okay, if you guys wouldn't mind standing, we're in First uh, Peter. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through 21 today. I will read verses 17 through 21, and then pray for us real quickly. First Peter 1, verse 17. <clears throat> if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You guys will be seated. Father, we just come before you today, Lord, and uh, just ask that you would, Lord, just minister to your people today, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, God, what you would have us to know from this word, Lord. Lord, I just pray that you would give me clarity in communicating it, Lord. And pray that Christ would be glorified, Father. In Christ's name, amen. Alright, the way I chose to approach this text here uh, is really to use verse 17, I guess you could say maybe as an introduction to the following four verses. Um, different commentators looked at it differently. I, I just didn't really know what to do with verse 17. Some, some uh, used it, they attached it to uh, verses 13 through 16, but most, most looked at it like I'm doing today, verses 17 through 21. Um, but really, verse 18 through 21, they really, that's, the, that's really the heart of it. So we're going to look at verse 17, I guess you could say, as, as somewhat of an introduction to the rest of the sermon. So in verse 17, he starts off by saying, well, and by way of review, because we, we have had a few people out, just real quickly. Um, last week, we really had some of the first imperatives in the chapter uh, really the whole idea in verse 13, if you guys remember, that, that he, was, he was calling his readers to prepare their minds, to gird up the loins of their minds for action. Um, you know, really calling them to, to fix their hope on the grace that was going to be brought to them at the revelation of Christ. And then, and then really in the next few verses, just an, just a, uh, an, an appeal really to, to live in a, a holy life. That's really what we talked about last week. Being holy... As our Father in heaven is holy, and and really, if you guys remember, and I think you guys, you know, we're, we're pretty aware of that. That that any type of holiness that is produced in our lives is from the grace of God. It's nothing in us. So it's really the idea of just, you know, the 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 grace that's in us that that it's work in us through the new birth, through His Holy Spirit, and then and then also the 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 hope that we have should motivate us. All of these things, it's, it's motivated by God. And so that was really the, the call last week to, to be holy and really to, to focus on Christ. Set our minds on Christ. You're never going to be holy if your mind is not on Jesus Christ. If you're not centered and focused upon Him, it's just going to be your flesh. And so, so then in verse 17, and, and really guys, we'll see as we go through this text today, we'll, we'll see really still the call is to be holy. We're going to see it. even the word, even though the words aren't used. Again, it's there were verses back then. His 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 train of thought is the same really in the text today. But let's look at verse seventeen real quickly. He starts off. He says, "If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time you stay on earth." Really, could be better translated since since you call, since you address. Um, he's talking to obviously he's he's writing this to believers, and so the idea is 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 since you address or since you call upon, really a present tense, since you are regularly calling upon, right? That's what Christians do, right, guys? As believers, do we not call upon the Lord? It's not just a one-time deal. We call upon the Lord. There's a lot of scripture references I could have put in here, but you guys get the idea. The idea is he's writing to, this describes a Christian. We, we call on God and we call on, we address him as Father. Right? And that's, that's the idea of, um, 
of intimacy. He is our Father. We're His children. But He balances it out here. He said, if or since you, you, know, you call on God as, as Father, He says, if you address as Father, the one who impartially judges. The idea is, yes, He is our Father. Amen to that. We can call, up, we can call on Him as our Father who has adopted us in His family, but we must not forget that He is also the one who judges. You know, it made me think back to the Sermon on the Mount in the, in the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, when He was teaching His disciples to pray. What did He say the very first thing? Our Father who is in heaven. The same idea. The language of intimacy, but also remembering He's in heaven. We're on earth. He's the owner of all things, the Lord of all things. He is sovereign. So it's just this balance. So he says, the one who judges. And this stuff's real important. The one who, who impartially judges according to each one's work. Really, really the idea is the one who is judging. Uh, he, it's not that he's going to judge someday. He's judging now as well. Of course, we all know in the text itself it says, the one who judges according to each one's work. Uh, Romans 14.12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So really just remembering, guys, in this verse here, that God is going to judge each one according to His work. Each one of us, individually, even as God's people. We, ought, we will stand before God in judgment. It's not going to be a judgment of condemnation, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But our life on earth does matter. Right? I mean, there's going to be reward, loss of reward. And so, and so we, there will be a judgment, but really the idea, guys, is that He's also, he, he judges now in this life. Think of, think of the, the area of discipline, that God disciplines us. That's a, that's a real, we, we need to remember that. And that's some of the language of this verse. He judges us here and now. Um, real quickly, I'm going to read. Um, little passage in Hebrews to remind us of this, guys. All of this, all of this is very applicable to what we've been talking about, about holiness. And so just the idea that God judges through discipline, His children. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5-11. through 11, I was going to just mark certain verses, but it, the verses aren't long, so I'm just going to read it. Hebrews 12, 5-11. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. I think I referenced that several weeks ago, guys. You know, one of the reasons we're going to persevere to the end is the Lord's discipline in our lives. That's His means of preserving us to the end, right? He's not going to let His children just walk off and, and, and fully walk away from Him. He's not going to do it. His hand is upon us. It, it makes me think back to Jeremiah 32, verse 40, the uh, part of the New Covenant. that He said, my, I will put My Spirit in them so that they will not turn from Me. That's the idea. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom, whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I know you guys have probably heard this, but how many of you guys go next door and discipline your neighbor's kids? You don't, do you? At least not on a normal basis. <laughs> Maybe if they're in your home, but you guys get the idea. We discipline those who are ours, and that's the illustration that the writer of Hebrews is giving. Furthermore, we had, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Young people, if you have parents that love you enough to discipline you, you need to be thankful. Okay, You need to respect, have a high respect for your parents who discipline. Even though we don't do it perfectly, the motivation is because we love you. So... Um, Then you are, uh, let's see, verse 9, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more 
uh, be subjected to the Father of spirits and live. For they disciplined, earthly, earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. You see how all this is attached. His discipline is what enables us to persevere to the end because His hand is upon us. He is in us. And it leads us to holiness. And so all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline is not pleasant when you're going through it. But the idea is to produce righteousness, holiness, godly behavior, these type of things. Whether that's earthly discipline or discipline from our Lord. And so, he goes on to say in verse 17, Conduct yourselves in fear. Yeah, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Really, guys, the fear of God's discipline. Not and not a dread. We don't dread our Father. But I don't want to be, I'd rather learn without being disciplined. Wouldn't you guys? I mean, children, that's the best way to learn. Is not have to go through the discipline. The same thing with God, guys. If we if you're a child of God and you get off track, He's going to discipline you. And it is an act of love, but I'd rather learn without being God's hand of discipline on me. And so it's walking in fear, a healthy fear, guys. Respect, reverence, and awe. You guys know that's where we get that word awesome. The saints of old used to say, God is awful. It's just that awe. We should have an awe of God. God is all. In reality, He is the only thing in all of the creation, and well, He's not part of the creation in the universe who is truly awesome. It's our God. We should have an awe for God. And so this is a healthy place to live, guys. It's, it's really just telling us to live in the presence of God. Live in the presence of God. Realize His eyes upon us. And it produces... What, is, what does fear of the Lord do? It produces wise living, does it not? What does the proverb say over and over again? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so, lastly, in verse 17, he says these things, and conduct yourselves in fear during, uh, during the time of your stay on earth. Really just the whole idea of your sojourning here on earth. Back up in verse 1 where he, he referred to them and in my version as aliens, remember? Pilgrims, sojourners. So during this temporary stay on, life, or stay on earth, he's saying, this present life, this sojourning, temporary residence on earth is what this is saying. This is... We need to be reminded of that. Do we not? That this life is temporary. I do a lot of reminding, you know, when you're preaching the Gospel and you're, you're, you're pleading with people and urging people, you're reminding them that this life is a breath. And rightly so, it's going to be over real quick. But I want to remind you guys and myself as Christians, as God's people, that this life is a breath, guys. It's It's a breath. Only what you do for Christ is going to matter in the end. Only what we do for Christ is really going to matter. I say we live it up for Christ. Let's just live it up, man. It's going to be over real quick. We're, some of you guys are going to blink. Some of you young people, and you're going to be older and have a gray beard. Is that not right, Jamie? We were just talking about that the other day. <laughs> if not, you have gray hair. But I mean, it goes by so quick, guys. And so let's, I don't want any of us to get to the end of our life, guys. Yeah, yeah, we're saved by God's grace. But to, but to think that we wasted our life for Christ. And so, just let that be a reminder, guys. It's a, it's a temporary thing. And then in verse, verse 18, real quickly, I want to say, just look at that word knowing in the NAS. It says, knowing that you're not redeemed with perishable things. And so the idea, guys, is, what we just looked at in verse 17, he's, 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 he's urging them to, to, to conduct themselves in fear during this short time on earth, knowing, okay? There's an attachment here, knowing. Why should we be concerned about con- conducting ourselves in, you know, in fear and the fear of the Lord and all of these things that he's been saying? Knowing what it costs. Knowing what it costs to make you 
God's son or daughter. That's really the motivation here. Is when we understand what it cost for us to be able to call God our Father. And so that's my prayer as we start to dig into this text that you guys and myself as well, well, I've already, because I've been working through it, I have been very encouraged, very reminded of why it is that when we, when we really just get down to the bottom of it, why should we be following after Christ when we consider what He did for us? That's really what this text is going to help us remember. The cost, the price of our redemption. That's the title of the message. Charles Spurgeon says this, the heart of the Gospel is redemption. And the essence of redemption is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. You could even insert that. You could say the heart of the Gospel is redemption and the essence of redemption is the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Redemption and the blood of Christ. We sang about it. We sang about the blood. We sang a song. Uh, actually, there were multiple songs that, that, that uh, talked about the blood of Christ. I don't think we talk about the blood of Christ enough. You know, we tend to think of it, oh yeah, it's just that Baptist tradition, that hymn, you know. But we, you know, I hope that, that, that we can all be reminded that we need to talk about the blood, think about the blood more. The blood of Christ is what gives us hope. I'm going to read a short, uh, short couple pages out of the Valley of the Vision. We haven't read all this in a while, but there's a chapter. If you, if you guys will notice, and I'm sorry, I didn't look. I didn't look. I know most people in here either use the ESV or King James. In the, in the NAS, in verse 19, it says, The Precious Blood. And so, that's the title of this, of this one here. This, uh, these these uh, prayers of the Puritans. There's one called the precious blood. I want you to listen to the language of this. The precious blood, because that's what we're talking about today. Blessed Lord Jesus, before Thy cross I kneel and see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity that caused Thee to be made a curse, the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns the pierced hands and feet, the bruised body, the dying cries. The blood is the blood of incarnate God. It's worth infinite. It's value beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and the guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper, born in my birth, alive in my life, strong in my character, dominating my faculties, following me as a shadow, intermingling with my every thought, my chain that holds me captive in the empire of my soul. Sinner that I am, why should the sun give me light? The air supply my breath. The earth bear my tread. Its fruits nourish me. Its creatures subserve my ends. Yet Thy compassions yearn over me. Thy heart hastens to my rescue. Thy love endured my curse. Thy mercy bore my deserved stripes. Let me walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation, bathed in blood, tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation. You hear His, you hear his heart? We think about what it cost our, our God when He was here on earth. It should remind us of the wickedness of our sin. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. So let's look at verses 18-21 through 21 now. Uh, really the first thing we're going to look at is in verse 18 and 19. What was the price of our redemption? That's the title of the message, the price of our redemption. So what was the price of our redemption? The first thing we're going to look at is what could not purchase our redemption. So let's look at what could not or what does not or what will never 
purchase our redemption. First of all, uh, just to understand what the word redeem means, redeem just simply means to purchase somebody's freedom by paying a ransom. To purchase somebody's freedom by paying a ransom. And a ransom, it's a price that was paid to redeem. So the, the two words are used interchangeably. To purchase someone's freedom by paying a ransom. The ransom was the price paid to redeem. Really just think of the whole idea of uh, really in the context when you're talking about spiritually being redeemed, it's, it's the whole idea of being redeemed from slavery. Okay? And he says this in verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed, that's what we're looking at first of all, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. So we're not, we're not redeemed by those things that are perishable, right? It's right there in the text. He uses an example like silver or gold. Both very valuable and both very durable. But perishable. And so what's he saying? You're not going to be redeemed by any amount of money, any amount of riches. None of this will redeem you. And we're talking about being redeemed spiritually speaking. Riches, the Bible says, will not, they do not profit on the day of wrath. But only righteousness will deliver you from death. It reminded me of Peter in, uh, I believe, Acts chapter 8, dealing with Simon the sorcerer. What did he say? May your silver perish with you. It's going to perish like everything else. These things can't redeem. Money can't redeem. Riches can't redeem. Neither can another person redeem. Listen to Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. It says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. And just so we know what kind of redemption he's talking about. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. Oh, when you're talking about different, you know, Different areas of redemption, yeah. Silver and gold may help. Freeing a prisoner, some of these type of things. We're talking about our soul here. He said, No, he said, No man can redeem you. The redemption of our soul is costly, guys. And he says, He should cease trying forever. No man can redeem his soul, his own soul, and no man can redeem another man's soul with any amount of money, with any amount of riches. Or with good works. In other words, there's no system that's built into some man-made false religion that's going to redeem a soul. When you think of, um, when you think of, of course, good works, the system of trying to earn your way to heaven by good works is, in essence, they're trying to redeem themselves. You think of Mormonism when, when they are literally baptized for the dead. They won't use the word redeem, but that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to help somebody who's already passed on. Listen to what the Roman Catholic Catechism says. Just this whole idea that comes directly against the warning in Psalm 49 that I just read. It says a Roman Catholic can help someone out of purgatory and into heaven by offering prayers and suffrage for them especially the Eucharistic sacrifice. They also help them by almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance. People's trying to redeem people that's already de- they're already dead. And so you hear the warning in Scripture. It says, we should cease these things forever. We should cease trying to redeem ourselves or another person, whether they're alive or dead. These things don't redeem. Silver and gold don't redeem. Works, righteousness, religion do not redeem. Do they forget what Hebrews 9.27 says? It has been appointed for a man to die once, and after that the judgment. There is no redemption after we go from this life to the next. Nothing in creation, guys. That's really what we're looking at. 
All these things that are perishable, nothing in creation can redeem a single soul from the slavery, from the bondage and the penalty of sin. That's what we're talking about. How can a soul be redeemed from sin? The, the, the power of sin, the bondage of sin, the penalty of sin. That's what redemption is. Being set free from these things. I just inserted this quote in my uh, sermon this morning as I was, I was reading my early Baptist history that I'm reading right now. And I'm, and I'm on um, John Gill. And he had this quote as I was reading, so I thought it really applied to the sermon. He says this, Redemption is a deliverance from sin. From all sin, original and actual. And that not only from the guilt of sin and the punishment due unto it, but in consequence of redeeming grace, the redeemed ones are delivered from the dominion and governing power of sin. And at last, from the, from the very being of it. That is what redemption is, guys. We are set free. It's being set free from slavery to sin. Think of a slave market. And that's what happens when our God redeemed us. When we say that we have been redeemed, or the song of the redeemed, we are those who have been set free. We were in the slave market of sin, and God has redeemed us. So these things that we just mentioned, in this way of thinking, it says, are from our futile way of life, inherited from our forefathers in verse 18. It says, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Futile, that word just means vain, empty, worthless. It's an existence that is without purpose. That is what your life was like and my life was like before you knew Christ. It didn't have any purpose. Not lasting purpose. Not purpose that's going to go on into eternity. It's a life apart from Christ. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, he had been given all the riches and all the pleasure that he lived really, really uh, outside of the will of God. That's, you know, when you, when you see him, you'll, you'll hear the word vanity, vanity. All these things are vanity. It's a picture of a life that's, that's lived apart from Christ, really. And listen to what he says at the very end. In verses 13 and 14 in chapter 12. The conclusion, after seeing everything, and he talked about even things like just normal things, you know, you get up and you go to work. If it's not for the glory of God, it's, it's in vanity. It really is. But he says, the conclusion when all has been heard is this, fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. You may be somebody that says, it doesn't apply to me because I want nothing to do with God. It applies to every person. Jesus Christ is King and He is Lord of all. But the question is, is have you subjected yourself to the King? Of course it applies to you. Why? Because it says, for God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil, God will summon you and you will stand before Him and give an account of everything. This applies to every person. Fear God and keep His commandments. That is, that is wisdom. Right? It's wisdom. Vanity. Vanity. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? The, the, the most vain thing, or like our text says, futile thing a person can do is live their life with spiritual ear, earplugs on saying, I'm not going to listen to what God says. And you may gain all the riches, you may gain all the pleasure and lose your soul. That is not just vanity, that is tragic. That is sad. And so he says, conduct yourselves Oh, sorry, wrong verse. Um, you want 
redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. All, obviously, his readers were mixed with Jews and Gentiles. Could have been forefathers. Could have been, you know, Jewish traditions or pagan traditions. The idea, guys, whether Jew, pagan, or us sitting here today, an unconverted Baptist, you know. Don't be that person that says, well, this is how we always have done it when it's in violation of God's Word. That's a foolish way to live. That futile way of life that we inherit from our forefathers. No, turn to Christ. And so that was what, you know, what was the cost of our redemption. The first thing we looked at is what it's not, right? We're not redeemed with anything perishable on this earth. And so there's only one thing. It's rather obvious, right? In verse 19, we've been singing about it. There's only one thing that could pay the price for our redemption. And there it is, right at the beginning of 19. Blood. Not only blood, but precious blood. But with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. I really enjoyed putting this sermon together, guys. The blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. It's precious in God's sight. He was an innocent, sinless man, but He was the Son of God. That's what made it precious because of who He was. Acts 20, verse 28. Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders and he said this, the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. The blood. Remember what the blood represents, guys. There's there's nothing magical about the physical blood of Christ. Although He was God in the flesh. That's not what it's talking about. When the Bible talks about the blood, it just represents His work on the cross where His blood was shed. That's what it's meant by the blood. His work on the cross. And it says, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. There's no doubt Peter had to have been referring to the night of the Passover. The Passover lamb. Exodus chapter 12. You can turn there if you'd like. We actually looked at this passage last week in reference to girding up our loins. But Exodus 12 verses 3 through 14, I've just got a certain verses noted that I'm going to look at for sake of time. But just to hear the language, to hear the language, to see the symbolism, to see the picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. The Lord tells Moses, Speak to all the congregation of Israel. And this is the, this is the night of the Passover when he, when he delivered Israel from Egypt, from the Egyptians. He says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Down in verse 5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. There's the picture. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you'll see that language used throughout the Levitical sacrificial system. Get an unblemished lamb. But there it is. An unblemished lamb, a male a year old, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall, verse 6, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Verse 7, Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So here we see the death of the lamb. The blood of the lamb being applied to the doorposts. Verse 11, the very end of verse 11, we see it's, it is, this is the Lord's Passover. And then verses 12 through 14. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood, the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike 
the land of Egypt. There is the Passover. He will pass over you when He sees the blood applied. We know the application, right? Has the blood of Jesus Christ been applied to you? Are you under the blood? Verse 14, Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. So in this Passover account, we see the unblemished male lamb that was the price. He was the price or the ransom that was required to spare the life of the firstborn children of Israel. We see a ransom that had to be paid. Blood had to be shed here. And so this is a... uh, Oh, in in reference to verse 12-14 that we looked at real quickly. In Exodus 12-14, they were to annually celebrate the Passover, right? To remember how God redeemed them from the Egyptians, from the bondage in Egypt. But more so, guys, this is a clear picture that typified the sacrificial death of the true Lamb of God who John the Baptist cried out in the wilderness. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of His people. You, you think those Jews in that area didn't know what He was referring to? All this, They had the Old Testament Scriptures. Here's the true Lamb of God. And so yes, it was a memorial to do every year to remember the the great redemption that that God performed, but more so a picture of the coming redemption. When the true Lamb of God would redeem His people, not from the bondage of a nation, as great as that was, but from the bondage of sin and death and hell. That's what it all typified. Bondage from the penalty of of the sin that the law demands for all of us. The law demands death for those who don't perfectly obey. And who has perfectly obeyed? None of us. The law demands death. It's called the curse of the law. We're under the curse of the law apart from Christ. But thanks be to God in Galatians 3, verse 13, the Scripture tells us that Christ has redeemed us. There's our word. He has redeemed us from what? The curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. A curse for us. He became a curse for us. It says, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. Here in verse 19. Obviously, he was unblemished. He was spotless. He was sinless. He was without sin. He was the perfect one. It says, for our sake, he made him. God made him. God the Father made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We quote this, guys, and we say it a lot, but do we see the significance of it? This is our redemption, that Christ become a curse. He, he became that ransom, that, that price of our redemption. What, what was the price of our redemption? The death of Jesus Christ. He was our ransom. For even the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom. As a ransom, as, as the price that was paid to redeem you from the curse of the law. It was Jesus Christ. His sinless life. It says He came not to be served, but to serve. What better way could God serve us? What better way could Christ serve you than to give His life as a ransom, than to purchase your redemption and my redemption? That is the price that was paid so that to pay our for our freedom from the slave market of sin and the consequences where that was going to take us. Secondly, when was the plan of redemption? In verse 20, first part of verse 20, when was the plan of redemption? For He was foreknown 
before the foundation of the world. Have you heard this? Christianity is a fairly new religion. It's only a couple thousand years old. So you Christians don't have... I mean, it's fairly new, right? Well, we probably know better than that. And so many times we, we may go back to what? Genesis chapter 3, which is great. I do it all the time. Oh no, sir, go back to Genesis chapter 3. God prophesied in Genesis 3.15 that He would send the seed of the woman, right? To crush the serpent's head. That's a, that's a picture of the Gospel. It's the first proclamation of the Gospel. So we may go, no, it's more like 6,000 years old. Roughly. But guys, we can go back way further than that. Right here in this text. He was foreknown when? Before the foundation of the world. I want you guys to have confidence when you're confronted with those arguments that Christianity is a new religion, that so-and-so, this religion's older, and this religion's older. We can take them back before there was a such thing as time. When Christ was foreordained. That's the meaning here. He was predetermined. When it says God foreknew Him, it doesn't mean that yeah, God the Father He knew about Jesus. No, He was foreknown. He was predetermined specifically to be the Savior. That's what this is talking about. It was decreed before the foundation of the world that He would die for sinners. By God's decree, the Son of God was appointed to the work of redemption before the foundation of the world. Before time existed. We call it the covenant of redemption. The covenant between the Godhead. This was not thought of after Adam fell. In the, in the Baptist history I've been reading, Benjamin Keach, our particular Baptist forefather, he, he called it the covenant of peace. But the covenant of peace, the covenant of redemption, it's the covenant that was made before the foundation of the world. He was foreknown. He was predestined. He was appointed for the work of redemption, guys, to redeem us before this thing that we call time even existed. I don't... I can't comprehend that. You can't wrap your mind. What do you mean before time? <laughs> but that's the wisdom and the power of our God. Acts 2.23 When Peter was preaching to the Jews, Pentecost, and he said, this man, Jesus the Nazarene, right, delivered over by what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Exact same thing. He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And then, in time and space, he says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. And we've talked about that before. They did what they desired to do. They were guilty of murdering their Messiah. But at the same time, God had decreed it before the foundation of the world. So take confidence, take confidence and and, and be encouraged by that, guys, that our God is in control. And the cross was preordained before time began. The cross is the central part of history. It's not plan B. It's not even plan A. It's just the plan. And so, thirdly, when was it made manifest? When was this redemption made manifest? Still in verse 20. He says, For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times. Well, we'll stop there. But has appeared in these last times. In these last times, it was made manifest. At His appearing, in other words. In His incarnation, when He came and He was born of a virgin. When John says he, that, that the Word, who was God, became flesh. When He was made manifest. I love the way Paul says it in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might do what? Redeem those who are under the law. It's all right there in that verse. Have you guys ever, have you guys ever looked at that, that fullness of time? We're not going to do it now, but... Maybe someday, Lord willing, if we go through Galatians. That is really interesting to study that. 
When it says the fullness of time. When, when the time was right that God had ordained. And you can look at very practical things. You know, the, the, the roads in Rome being built. And Alexander the Great and coming in and, and doing what he did in the language, the Greek language. And so it made it really possible for the Gospel to be spread really quickly. The fullness of time. But in a personal sense, guys, when, you know, when, when, when Christ was manifest as appearing, is when our redemption was made manifest. In a personal sense, though, we're talking about individuals because I mean, we weren't there, right, when He appeared physically. There was a generation that was. And so in a personal sense, He's even made manifest in a more, in a more personal way through the preaching of His Word. Right? Through the preaching of His Word. Jesus is made manifest to individual lives and hearts as His Gospel is proclaimed. He is the Word, right? He is, he is, that's one of His titles. He is the Word of God. I think I referenced this verse last week, but we were talking about the calling, how God calls, the effectual call. In 2 Thessalonians 2.14, Paul says, He called you through the Gospel. So that's the idea. When the Gospel is proclaimed and, and Jesus Christ begins to manifest Himself to you. Well, the Holy Spirit begins to manifest Christ to you. He says He came to seek and save the lost. That's why He came. You know, Jesus Christ is seeking and saving the lost, lost right now. All over the world. What's He doing? He's gathering His church from every tribe, every tongue. Every people group, sorry, Hebrew Israelites, every people group, He is gathering His church. Right now, that's what He's doing. He is seeking those who are lost. Man, I take, I take great comfort in that. That he, that he said, I will, you shall net, net call His name Jesus, why? For He will save His people from their sins. He didn't say He might. He said He will. And that's what He's doing right now. Is He seeking you today? I trust most of you. He's already made Himself manifest. But is He seeking you today? Is He calling you today? Is He calling you today out of darkness to come into the light? The marvelous light that Peter talks about in chapter 2. I want you to think about guys. I'm talking to Christians here. Think back to that time when God called you. When He when He made Himself manifest to you and you realize like the Puritan brother was talking just your sin for the first time. Maybe he was a young person. Maybe he was older like me. You realize your sin and what, and what Christ had to do to pay for your sin. And, just, and, and it helped you see your sin in a way you've never seen it as the Holy Spirit began to open your eyes. Think back to that time. And the verse that we talked about in our catechism it just I thought of that verse as I was reading this. In the, in the day of His power, his, his, his people will volunteer freely. Just the idea that when the Gospel is proclaimed and God comes in His power, in His conviction, in His grace, we come freely, right? And we think... I mean, obviously we understand the, the sovereignty of God and everything as we study the Scriptures, but... I remember thinking at that time, why did I waste so many years? Why didn't I come sooner? But remember that time when He came and manifested Himself to you and you saw the beauty of Jesus Christ for the first time in your life. You thought, I've been living in rebellion towards Him. And He could have taken my life and He didn't. He spared me and He saved me. Praise God. And be warned that today if you do hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Okay? Young people and old people alike, don't harden your hearts. We're not guaranteed another breath. Then lastly, for whose sake did He appear? For whose sake did He appear? And uh, end of verse 20 and 21. I'm going to read 20 and 21. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Obviously, it's saying He was appointed for our redemption before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. For whose sake did He appear? 
Simply put, the believing ones. It says right there in verse 21. He appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God. Really the same language as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe upon Him will not perish but have eternal life. The emphasis in that verse is the believing ones will not perish but will have eternal life. So He came, He was manifest for those who believe. Obviously, we don't know who those people are who are going to believe. But that's who He came. Let's don't overcomplicate this thing. Have you believed? If you have believed, then take heart. He was manifest for your sake. He redeemed you. If you haven't believed, again, we don't need to make it complicated, guys. The command is to believe. Right? Believe upon Christ. Repent and believe upon Christ. And then instead of trying to figure out the sovereignty of God, you can rest and bathe and be thankful that God is sovereign and in control and revealed Himself to you. So he, so it says, He, he appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God. By what means did they... Did they become believers? By what means did these believers become believers? It says, who through Him are believers in God. Who through Him? Through who? Through Christ. The One who redeemed us. It's through Him you are believers in God. Him alone, right? Not Him plus baptism. Not Him plus fill in the blank. Not Him plus your good works. Not Him plus anything. Him alone. Right? One of the five solas. Sola Christus. Christ alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Revealed in Scripture alone for the glory of God alone. So it's through Him alone. Not some false religion. Guys, there is no Redeemer in in false religion. There is no Redeemer. There's no one to redeem. That's why a a message of a Gospel that you're saved by works, it's bad news. That's not good news. That's horrible news. If anybody comes to you telling you that you can be saved by your works, run. Well, as Christians, give them the truth. But you know what I mean. That's not good news. That's bad news. Because we're under the curse of the law. And we need somebody to redeem us from the curse of the law. We need somebody who's perfect. We need somebody who is a man and who is God. Who can reconcile the two. And He came. The Lord Jesus Christ. It cost the Son of God His life. Must we be reminded of that, guys? It cost Him His life. What does the Scripture say? We were bought with a price. We were bought with a price. We are not our own. Now we need to be reminded of this as God's people. You are not your own. I am not my own. By way of self-examination, guys, and I'm talking to Christians here, to remember that we're not our own, guys. We are not our own. We need to remember that we were bought and what it cost. Our beloved Savior. You remember your. So we need to remember, guys, that, that your body, my body, I'll say ours, right? Our body's not our own. We're not to just do with our body whatever we choose, right? We're not our own. We need to care for our body. These are just reminders. Take care of our body. It's not our own. We don't use it for just any purpose, any sinful purpose, but we use it to glorify God. Your mind is not your own. We're not free to just think about whatever garbage we want to think about. And we shouldn't desire to. But we just need to be reminded, guys, we were bought with a price. We're not our own. Your money's not your own. Guys, God owns everything. And He can take everything from you at any time. Our money's not our own. 
You are bought with a price. Our time is not our own. Time is a very, very sense or a very, very valuable, valuable commodity. Am I saying that right? Working for FedEx, my wife can tell you I'll be glad when I dwell outside of time. <laughs> There's no more clocks, no more. But but really, in this life, right? We got we got. Sometimes it doesn't seem like we have as much time as the next person, but we all got 24 hours in a day. We got to eat. We got to sleep. We got to work in some capacity. Got to take care of our family. All of these things, and so we need to arrange our time in a way that the Scripture says makes the most of the opportunity that God has given us. Use your time wisely. You've been bought with a price. These things, and we could we could list more things. I think these things are some of the general. None of these things are our own, guys. Our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price. The Lord owns us. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? And so I just say this by way of, really by way of, um, just reminder to the believers, guys. Do you desire to honor the one whom you call Lord with your lips? Obviously, we're never going to do it perfectly. Christ did it perfectly for us. But it should be our increasing desire to remember that our life is not our own. No, I don't want to think about things like that. My mind is the Lord's. I don't want to spend my money on those vain things. My money is the Lord's. My body is the Lord's. I will not participate in that because the Lord bought me. He owns me and I want to honor Him. Do you want to honor the Lord in these areas of your life? And so we came through Him, guys, we're about done, who through Him are believers in God. We came through Him. In one, in one sense, it was Christ in John 1.18. I don't have the verse written out, but it's where it says he, uh, he explained the Father to us. He exegeted the Father to us. He revealed the Father to us. So that's one sense we come through Christ. And then obviously we know John 14.6, right? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to remember who God is. God is holy. And because He is holy, He is unapproachable for sinful mankind. The prophet Habakkuk reminds us, he said, His eyes are too pure to approve of evil, and He cannot look on wickedness with favor. We couldn't be in His presence. He's a consuming fire. But, John 14.6, through Christ, we can come to the Father because Christ became that curse for us. That consuming fire of God's wrath fell upon Him. And so we can come to God through Christ. And Christ invites us to come to the Father through Him. You know, I hear at times the Gospel is not an invitation, it's a command. And really, it's both. You see Christ doing both. The Bible says both. Commands all men everywhere to repent. And you have other times of Jesus saying, come to me. So yeah, I would say yes. It is a command. But Christ invites unworthy sinners to come freely to the waters of life. He is a gracious God. And then lastly, guys, He has received glory, we see in, the, in verse 21. Who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. Or I say lastly, there's one other thing after that. But he, he has received glory. How? Through His resurrection. Right? He, he rose from the dead. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. He ascended through His ascension where He sits at God's right hand right now. Reigning. As we talked about in our catechism, reigning not as a future king, but reigning as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was prophesied as king in the Old Testament. And by His victory over death, through His resurrection, the Father put His stamp of approval on His Son as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one who has redeemed you today. And then, lastly and very lastly, is that not why, at the very end of verse 21, is that not why that our faith and hope are in God? Because He has risen 
He has ascended and He reigns as King. Let's pray. Father, what a uh, what an encouraging portion of Scripture, Lord. Uh, just an encouraging reminder of Your love for us. Lord, of the price of our redemption. The price of our, of our King giving up His very life willingly for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Went to the cross and gave up His life. We can never repay You. But Father, we thank You, Lord. We thank You for your word of, the Word of God. We thank You for giving us Your Word so that we can be reminded of really how much You love us as Your children. And Lord, that we can be reminded, Lord, of the urgency of this message to share with our friends and family, Lord, because it's a temporary stay on earth. So Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your saving grace. We thank You for our redemption. We thank You for the blood of Christ. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.